From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm is my name, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Tony will be back with you on Monday. I know that you have missed him. A couple reminders. You can find the show at TonyPerkins.com, and you can follow Tony on Gabbit at Tony underscore Perkins. If you want to get FRC research or um, FRC updates sent directly to your phone, do so at 67742. Text the word STAND to 67742. Also, download the Stand Firm app so you can get every episode of Washington Watch from your phone when you are not near a radio. You can do so at the App Store as well as on Google Play. And finally, uh, reminding you again this week about the last chance that you have uh, to join us in our Stand Together Today campaign where you can have your your contribution to faith, family, and freedom quadrupled. And the deadline has been extended to Saturday at midnight Eastern time. You can have your contribution quadrupled if you text right now media to 67742. Text the word media to 67742. Now, wrapping up an exciting, interesting week in Washington, D.C. At his first press conference as president yesterday, Joe Biden downplayed the situation at the southern border, saying nothing has changed and that the imminent sur- the immigrant surge that we are seeing happens every single solitary year. He also made some other claims that may not be precisely true. We're going to take a look at some of those claims with my first guest, U.S. Representative Greg Murphy. Senator Murphy, or Representative Murphy, I'm sorry. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Joseph. I hope you're doing well. Well, I, I am well. It's, it's, it's a Friday. It's been a week, but I am here, and, and we all are here. We have made it. President Biden has made it as well. But you have, uh, you have responded a little bit with your own piece of legislation that you think um, will help the situation at the border. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, Joseph, you know, I think there is uniform consensus that what happened in the nation's capital um, on January 6th was a tragedy uh, and a horrific occurrence in our nation's history. I was there. I was in the chamber at the time. We had criminals come into the chamber and uh, and break our laws, and they should be prosecuted completely. The, the result of that has been that Nancy Pelosi has tried to maintain an atmosphere of fear in the nation's capital, erecting a 10-foot razor wire fence and putting about 2,300 National Guard um, around the Capitol. The Capitol Police have been very forthright in saying there is no credible threat whatsoever. But still, those 2,300 men and women have been taken away from their homes, and uh, they are guarding a building that doesn't need to be guarded and a complex that does not need to be guarded. On the other hand, at our southern border, because uh, President Biden basically opened the door and said, come, come, come in now. Uh, We're not going to worry about anything. Come in right now. Central America, and we're finding out other countries have been sending uh, people also, um, are flooding our southern border and overwhelming our ability for customs and border control officers to, uh, to navigate and take care uh, of the people who are overflooding our border, especially, especially the thousands of unaccompanied minors. So why don't we do something novel? You know, the National Guard was incepted to respond to crises in our country's history. They do that over here in the east on, you know, times of hurricanes and floods. 
and uh, they've uh, they've been uh, something a resource uh, that our nation desperately needs. Why don't we actually take them where they're not needed, um, where there is no crisis in Washington D.C., and take those uh, men and women uh, and send them down to our southern border where there is a true crisis. Whether or not uh, President Biden acknowledges it, whether he understands it, uh, or or not, uh, but yeah. that's where that's where they're needed, and that's where they ought to be right now, rather than in Washington D.C. Now, I want to I want to talk about the the border situation, but I also want you to say a little bit more about what's going on in Washington D.C. Because those of us who work in Washington D.C. see this giant razor. You know, at least razor across the top of the fence um, all around the Capitol. It's really inconvenient depending on where you're trying to go on foot. But why do you think she's – why does this still exist? Is there conversations within the members of Congress about this fence? Um, is there – does anybody perceive a real threat? What do you think the purpose of continuing to maintain this military presence and giant wall around the Capitol is? Well, Joseph, uh, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, um, we're living in a dictatorship right now. We're living in a dictatorship of Nancy Pelosi. She's basically stripped Congress of its committee uh, uh, hearings, um, its due process, and what she wants done, she brings to the floor and has the votes to do it and moves on. She has uh, basically put a vice grip on Washington, D.C. Republicans, we want to tear the wall down. I mean, remember they said walls don't work? The Democrats (laughs) said that? There is no reason whatsoever. It is a political fence. It is not a protective fence. It is her trying to maintain an emotion of fear around the nation's capital. And uh, I, I just, she's, un, it's unconscionable. She how does that serve, and, how does that serve her purposes? It's been over half a billion dollars in expenditures. Yeah. How do you think she benefits from trying to maintain an atmosphere of fear? Well, because of what happened on January 6th. A great amount of emotion from surely Democrats, independents, and a lot of Republicans on what happened that day. And so she wants to maintain that, um, that, that fear of uprising, that fear of, uh, of violence that did occur on that day. But she wants to, for political purposes, continue that fear as long as she can. Well, let's talk now more about what is going on at the border and and what can be done about it. And and your proposal to move troops from Washington, D.C. to the border to do that is is one of them. Now, President Biden addressed this yesterday at the – at his press conference and and we're gonna i'm gonna play one clip here and, and bobby get clip one ready and then i'm gonna let the congressman uh go ahead and respond to this so go ahead and play that well look the idea that i'm gonna say which i would never do that if an unaccompanied child ends up at the border we're just gonna let him starve to death and stay on the other side no previous administration did that either except trump i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna do it now, do you think it's fair to characterize the alternative to what's happening now as simply letting kids starve to death? No, it, that's a, that's that's utter, um, just utter, uh, utterly disgusting that what Biden said, because that's not true about President Trump. That is not what happened at all. But it's sad that um, Biden has played upon the fears of Central America. Hey, send your kids up here now unaccompanied and we'll take care of them. No border guard. No borders guard is ever going to allow a child to die, if at all possible. And, um, you know, these kids, as I understand, one did die uh, in the desert today. Um, but uh, that's just absurd. 
And uh, again, it's, uh, it's something, uh, his slurred speech a little bit. I just wonder who's really yeah. calling the shots. Well, I, I think that's an important point, you know, because in politics, there's a lot of rhetoric that's lobbed back and forth and people might use hyperbolic language just because they're excited or because they think it will play well to that particular audience. The accusation that uh, President Trump would just let kids starve to death um, rather than help them is not just an indictment of President Trump because, as you pointed out, and I want to just drive this point home, what he's essentially alleging is that the good men and women who work at the border and, and worked there under President Trump and Certainly everybody who works there under President Biden was probably there under President Trump as well. And the accusation there really is an indictment on the the character of the people at the border to suggest that they uh, would just stand there and watch children starve to death because uh, uh, allegedly or Im implicitly in that case, um, President Trump told them to do that. And so I, I do think in our language, we we we. It's not just an indictment on the president, is it? No, no, it's not. And it, it's a tragic uh, uh, bunch of words that the president put out. Um, I, I'm not sure, uh, really, as I said, who's calling the shots, but it's just totally false. And the, I mean, I've been down on the border, Joseph. I'm going down in two weeks. They're good, hardworking uh, individuals that are just trying to help uh, help our nation. Well, if your bill were to pass and, and if you were to move the troops who are currently occupying Washington, D.C. To, to the southern border, what specific roles do you think they could be involved with that would help the situation down there? Well, Joel, um, I'm not under a delusion that Pelosi would allow that bill to, to, uh, to go through. But uh, regardless, it still brings what I believe is a actually logical uh, alternative to what's going on. You know, the real winners in all this, uh, Joseph, sadly enough, are the drug cartels. The drug cartels now, because our borders and customs control officers have been overwhelmed, are now allowed to uh, – are able, rather, to push drugs in at an alarming rate um, into our country. The same thing with illicit cash and, sadly enough, also with human trafficking. They're able to bring especially young women, uh, a third of whom are actually abused uh, migrants into this country – uh, sexually abused, they're able to push that human trafficking into this country. And under the guise of safe passage, these individuals are essentially sold into slavery. And so, you know, Biden and his administration are complicit in allowing an increase in human trafficking and an increase in narcotics coming across our border. You and, know, we, uh, you know, I think our National Guard could very well help the, the, uh, the border control help us uh, parole, uh, patrol our borders. I'm going to play one more because there's several things that, that President Biden said yesterday that raised some eyebrows. And we're going to go ahead and play clip two, and then I'm going to let you respond to this one as well. Go ahead, Bobby. If you take a look at the number of people who are coming, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of people coming to the border and crossing are being sent back, are being sent back. Thousands, tens of thousands of people who are, who are over 18 years of age and single people, one at a time coming, have been sent back, sent home. Now, that's what President Biden had to say. Do you have uh, any different intel on that issue? Are we actually sending the vast majority of people back? 
That's utter nonsense. Uh, I read a report today that it's less than 20 percent, um, probably even lower than that, that are actually being sent back. So, again, I don't know where he's getting his information. I don't know who's feeding it to him. I'm not sure if he's really in touch with reality uh, of what's going on at the border. He, of course, has refused to even, number one, acknowledge it's a crisis, two, um, go and visit. And, uh, you know, the, the cream puff questions sent by the mainstream media at these uh, at these fake uh, uh, news conference or this fake news conference, the first one he's had during his entire presidency, I just bemoan the fact that our commander in chief, I'm not sure is all there and sure doesn't know what's going on with the crisis that he caused at the border. He also implied yesterday at his press conference that uh, all these people are coming to the border now post uh, election because he's just a much nicer guy than Donald Trump was. Do you think that actually has anything to do with it or is there something else going on? No, no. Well, I mean, you know, people had sometimes troubles with Trump with Trump's personality and I get that. I, I truly get that. But we're also a nation of laws and I think it's more the fact that hey, uh, there're no laws here. There are no immigration laws. You can come and, and uh, just come right into our country, and we won't prosecute you, or we won't prevent you. That's what the issue is. It has nothing to do with niceness of a president. Well, Congressman Murphy, we thank you for your time, and I, I thank you for the proposal because I think it, it sheds light on, some, on a really important point, that we are guarding things where there are no risks for political purposes, and we are not guarding things where there is a real risk also for political purposes. So thank you very much for your time and your service to our country. God bless, Joseph. Have a good weekend. Now, coming up, election reform is being introduced in states across the country, but opponents claim such efforts are pushing for voter suppression. What's the truth? Stay tuned. We'll talk about it. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. 
To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins, who will be back with you on Monday. On Thursday, so that would be yesterday, lawmakers in Georgia gave final passage to legislation that seeks a sweeping overhaul of state election law. The bill has been called draconian by critics, and the left has been saying that this bill and others like it that are being introduced in states around the country is part of an effort by conservatives to suppress voters. But is it voter suppression or are it common sense safeguards that most Americans would support if they weren't given misleading narratives that frame these policies as unpopular, unnecessary, and discriminatory? Joining me now to talk about this is Jason Sneed, Executive Director of the Honest Elections Project. Jason, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you because uh, we care about this issue a lot. Let's start off by uh, looking at what happened in Georgia. Uh, what are the details? Is this is this voter suppression or is it something better than that? Oh, I think it's something a lot better than that. Look, I mean, no one on the left or, or the right would, uh, I think, ever defend laws that, that actually discriminate against voters on the, the basis of the color of their skin. But nevertheless, the left continues to assume and assert that any policy that they do not like in the voting space is voter suppression, despite the fact that they have produced no evidence to back up that claim in years of debating this point. What happened in Georgia is simply that the, the legislature passed and the governor signed a series of, of, of good steps towards ensuring voter confidence and the credibility of our elections. And the, the, the key piece, the signature part of this package, is that it requires for the first time that absentee voters provide a, a form of voter ID with their absentee ballot. And they do this by writing in the, the driver's license number or their state ID number. These, these, are, are, these IDs are free to get if you are indigent and cannot afford them. Most people already have them, and it will be very easy to comply with this law. But nevertheless, they call it voter suppression. Now, that actually seems fairly common sense. And is this, is this novel to Georgia? Have other states done this in the past? Because, I mean, as, as this mail-in voting situation it proliferates, as it becomes more common and people become more comfortable with that, this seems like a, a, a simple way to 
to verify identity. Is this is this uh, first time in Georgia? Uh, no, there have been other states that have done this. Ohio has done this before. And, I mean, again, it has not in any way, shape, or form inhibited anyone from voting. What it does is bring greater confidence to the election system by requiring that, that voters who are casting absentee ballots do the same thing that voters who are voting in person do, and that is prove that they are a valid, qualified voter. And this is especially important in the absentee space because you are doing voting away from a polling place. There are no election monitors. There are no election observers or government officials there observing you casting your ballot. And so when you're doing this behind the, the, the doors of your home, you need to have something that solves the information problem that arises. You need to make sure that the people who are telling and tabulating those votes can have confidence that the person who cast it is actually the qualified voter. This solves this problem. What were the arguments or what are the arguments being made why this is a problem? I understand just kind of because politics are politics and people say silly things all the time just because they're trying to like frame a narrative. But very specifically, what was the policy objection in the Georgia legislature of why we would not want to have absentee voters prove that they are eligible voters? Well, look, you, you, you saw several arguments, variations on which have been used repeatedly throughout the years to uh, to attack and, and, and ultimately um, to try to stop basically any reasonable voting reform. Uh, you saw the claim made that this simply wasn't necessary because there is no widespread fraud. You saw the claim made that voters will not be able to comply with this law, particularly low-income uh, low and minority voters. And you saw that this is just going to create a burden on the process of voting and on the, the actual exercising of the right to vote. The, the reality is that uh, a majority of Americans actually favor uh, absentee voter identification laws and voter identification laws writ large. In fact, we actually did a, a, a poll recently, and what this poll found is that 77 percent of voters nationwide favor a photo ID requirement when casting a ballot. And that includes, if you can believe it, a majority of people who voted for Joe Biden for president in 2020. It, it includes a majority of African-American voters, in fact, by 40 points. So it's not even close. And in the Hispanic community, by 60 points, they favor requiring a photo ID to cast a ballot. And 66 percent of Americans want that same provision applied to absentee votes. What you said a few moments ago is exactly right. As more people turn to absentee ballots in our election, the need becomes greater for us to, to solve problems related to the security of those ballots. Things like ballot trafficking bans, preventing political operatives from collecting these ballots in an unsupervised fashion, and voter ID laws are, I would argue, necessary steps to secure the process and provide for, for voter confidence. Now, now, you cited some, some great survey results about how the public feels about this issue of voter integrity. Now, how would you compare and contrast what Georgia just did with what is being proposed in Congress with H.R. 1? Oh, I would say that these are 180 degrees apart from one another. These are polar opposites. What you saw in Georgia was an attempt to bolster safeguards and make really truly reasonable and when you actually talk to real voters, bipartisan and popular improvements to the voting system. What's going on in Congress with S-1 is entirely different. That is a, a bill which has a whole series of problems with it. 
constitutional problems, legal problems, and bad policy problems that would fundamentally reshape elections in all 50 states. It would undermine voter identification laws. It would prevent them from being applied to absentee ballots. In fact, it would expand mail-in voting while weakening safeguards. It's an entirely opposite direction, and I don't think most Americans support that. Very quickly, would H.R. 1 prevent Georgia from doing what they just did? Yes, absolutely. All the progress that was just made would be wiped away in terms of absentee ballot safeguards. And that's one of the reasons why H.R. 1 is such a problem. Jason Sneed, executive director of the Honest Elections Project, thanks so much for time. Thanks for covering this issue for us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Stay with us. Coming up, what do cancel culture and the Sweet 16 have to do with each other? It's more than an alliteration. Stay tuned to find out who has jumped or dribbled into the crosshairs of the left. We'll talk about it right after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I'd definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. If you thought you missed the opportunity to join our Stand Today Together campaign, you'll be glad to hear that the campaign has been extended until Saturday at midnight Eastern time to give more people the opportunity to join our efforts to stand up against the cancel culture's attacks on freedom and rights. To donate now, text MEDIA to 67742. Every gift will be quadrupled. That's 67742. Text the word media. Now, March Madness, the basketball tournament, of course, has some people 
just plain mad. And I'm not talking about being upset over their team losing, but over one team's success to date. I'm talking about the Golden Eagles of Oral Roberts University, which advanced to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 1974, after upset victories over number two seed Ohio State and then a number seven seed Florida. Usually, most people like a Cinderella story like that of the 15th-seeded ORU, but not the left when it comes to this one because, why, ORU holds religious beliefs that do not affirm homosexuality. In fact, some are calling for ORU's removal from the NCAA. Should we be surprised? With me now to talk about this story is J.P. Duffy, FRC's Vice President of communications and a graduate of Oral Roberts University. JP, welcome back. Hey, Joseph. Great to be on. Well, I, I know that you're you're happy to talk about this story because you are just bursting with pride. Um, but we are not going to focus on the basketball team. We're going to focus on why so many people are mad at them and kind of trying to characterize them as just this, of course, this bastion of hate. You're an, you're an alum. You know the community. You've spent some time there. What was your experience? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're right, though, and it is thrilling to to see them uh, perform so well in the the tournament. Only the second 15 seed team ever to make it to the Sweet 16, and and uh, I think they're now looking to make history again tomorrow against those uh, Arkansas Razorbacks. And yes, I I have heard that uh, in the ORU cafeteria tomorrow that they're going to be serving some Razorback uh, maybe back Perfect. ribs. I wish I could have some of Perfect. those, but uh, brings back memories back yes to the time I was there and. And in my experience at, at ORU was amazing. I mean, I, it, it, it's a it's a university that is founded with a, a vision statement that to raise up students to hear God's voice, to go where His light is dim, His voice is heard small, His healing power not known even to the uttermost bounds of the earth. And and uh, it's also a university founded on the authority of Scripture. And uh, I I had that drilled into me during my time there. And uh, we we learned to, to, that we were to live out our faith, uh, not just on campus, but in society. And uh, whether that be as a player on a basketball court, or or even as my in, in the case of what I do now as a communicator, working to shape the the court of public opinion. You know, it, it's interesting this kind of this really public uh, opposition to ORU because they aren't even being accused of having done something to someone, right? Oftentimes, cancel culture comes out because you tweeted something that we didn't like, or or you said something that we didn't like, or you did something we didn't like. In this case, it's just you believe things we don't believe, and you wrote it down. Uh, is that is is that a, a development in cancel culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's clear that, that obviously the target goes much bigger here. I think this USA Today editor that wrote this piece is trying to do more than just boot ORU from the NCAA because ORU has a biblical view of, of marriage and sexuality. I mean, that's always been the case for the university and has been the case for Christianity for thousands of years. But what what's behind this is much bigger. It's about ultimately we know it's a you know spiritual battles are, are taking place and we know that ultimately the the target here is the gospel of jesus christ and we've seen both the the coach uh and the president of the university sharing the gospel in the media um but it's even even more than that it's about stopping um bible believers those of us um intimidating us from living out our faith outside the campus outside the four walls of the church and uh, preventing us from going into the various sectors of society, whether that be business, entertainment, education, government, and medicine. 
but I loved how uh, ORU's president um, tweeted. His tweet yesterday was was great. It was First Peter two fifteen for it says for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And he's exactly right. As Bible believers, that's what we should continue to do in the face of this. We should continue to be to do good. We need to have a greater reverence for for God, as as Tony Perkins often says on this program, than what someone in the media says and what this person says. And we need to realize kind of the ideology that's driving behind it and what the end goal here is. Now, that's that's a really good point. And and I think for those who are just kind of observing this story and cancel culture and, and culture in general, you know, the, the left has said for a long time that it's wrong to impose your morality on other people. And, and we won't get into the discussion of why it's impossible not to impose morality, but they say it's wrong. Don't impose your morality on other people. In this case, they're saying, hey, Oral Roberts University, don't impose your morality on yourselves. And that is, in fact, a that, that's a that's a change that affects all of us because right. you know, they, they're well, coming I- at us in our buildings, right? Right. And I think there's, yeah, and I think that it's the same kind of ideology is what's driving a lot of the legislation we see in Congress, from like the Equality Act of Fairness for All, which offer these narrow, flimsy exemptions for a few people. If you're willing to just keep your faith uh, quarantined within the, you know, within your head or, or in your church. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, these bills change every facet of our society, stripping women's rights, women's uh, privacy in the locker rooms, conscience rights, parental rights. Adoption centers, all these areas will be radically changed under laws that are passed like that. And we we, we got to stand firm. We we got to we got to we, we, we got to have a reverence for God that overwhelms anything, any of the fear that the the world is pushing on us. And that's exactly right. And and fortunately, we're all thankful that ORU is uh, providing an example for how to do that right now. JP right. Duffy, go thanks. Go ORU Golden Eagles. <laughs> go, and, and many of us will be rooting for them this weekend as they play some more basketball in the Sweet 16. Coming up, I will be having my weekly chat with FRC's David Clausen. We're going to talk about courage. How do we think biblically about courage in the age of the cancel culture? That's what we're going to talk about. After break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. 
there is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home with you as we wrap up the week and head into the weekend. And for the past several weeks, I've wrapped up each Friday program with a conversation with FRC's David Clausen, who is the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. And we've been talking about a pressing cultural, political, or theological issue with the goal of helping you Think biblically about everything in picking a subject. And this week, we're going to look at how to think biblically about courage. What does it look like? What does it require? Uh, how do we know if we're being courageous or just stupid? David, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Joseph. It's always a, a joy to finish the work week off uh, with these conversations about really important things. It really is. And, and I want to... I want to start um, by talking about the governor of South Dakota um, and kind of frame this conversation there first, because uh, Christy Noam has gotten a lot of attention this week and probably attention that she wasn't really at this point. She's not very excited about uh, because of her decision um, to when, and I guess she wouldn't say she would say ratify, but most people would say gut and veto a, a bill protecting women's sports. And she has gotten a lot of opposition for this. And, and when we think about courage, we're often uh, we're often told and, and, it, and it's true that doing things in the face of opposition takes courage. And and I think that that is true. But how do you how do you, we look at courage when you're you're facing opposition from your friends, is that courageous? Is it wrong? What, what's the highest level way to think about what courage is? Yeah, it's a, a great question. I think using kind of what happened in South Dakota this week is a great entry point into the conversation on, on what courage is, because I think our listeners have heard us talk about this on the show all week long. Um, so don't need to kind of get into the details of that, but uh, I, I do have a piece, Joseph, thinking biblically about courage. And what I try to do in that piece <clears throat> is define what is courage. And actually, 
you know, it's interesting, you know, as Christians, the Bible is our primary source, uh, but as Christians, we believe all truth is God's truth. And I actually uh, found something Aristotle said, uh, the Greek philosopher, uh, helping me just kind of what is courage. And what he argued uh, is that the moral behavior is found in the mean or the moderate position between two extremes. And so he actually defines courage as the mean or, or that middle ground between feelings of fear and overconfidence. So he says it's, it's right there in the middle. Um, Merriam-Webster, I think, helps flush it out a little bit more when it defines courage as the mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. So I, I think, Joseph, as, as I've been thinking about courage all week long, I think uh, to be a courageous person means that you have the poise and fortitude to do the right thing in the right way at the right time. I think it, it requires you to stay on track. Uh, so they're, 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 you have to be brave and you have to be kind of in the right. I think that's how I land uh, when it comes to defining what courage is. You know, I, there's a lot to agree with there and, and not to disagree with you, but I'm, I'm going to kind of tease this out a little bit because I think everybody who has done something where they have been opposed would say this takes courage. I would say if we were, if, if, if Christy Noam uh, came onto the program, she would say what I'm doing is courageous. And she's actually said there's bullies on the left and there's bullies on the right. And right now I'm standing up to the bullies on the right. That's kind of her framing of this. Is it possible to be courageous um, in pursuit of something bad? It's a good question, and I think kind of the way Christians have, especially Christian philosophers, have understood it, to be courageous, um, to, to truly be courageous in, in kind of a biblical sense, there needs to be morally praiseworthy ends that are associated with that. Now, sure, people can take stands uh, that can exhibit some sort of kind of bravery uh, when they're pursuing morally kind of blameworthy ends. But I think if we're thinking about our vocabulary or we're think, thinking about the lexicon, I think that's where the, the, the moral strength, that, that aspect of courage, there's a, there's a moral rightness to what you're standing for that I think is at the core of what it means to truly be courageous. So suicide bombers are not courageous or they are? It's a good question, Joseph. I think so. Think about I mean, because that you know, I, it, I, when I when I look at that scenario, I mean, it's like I, I it, it there's I wouldn't say it's respect, it's admiration, it's nothing like that because it's wickedness and it's evil. But it's amazing to think about believing something that much, and you think about the Japanese kamikaze pilots who flew into into planes. You know, they're doing something that I can't imagine doing, and on one level, it seems brave, but that that's not courage. I think, you know, again, it, 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 we're, this is so important to get back to definitions. And, and I think the 9 11 you know, hijackers, the Oklahoma City bomber, the kamikaze pilots in World War II, I, I do think there's some level of what we would probably colloquially call courage or, or right. bravery, dedication to the cause, um, just completely selling out to the cause in some of the cases that you just raised. Right. But again, I think to truly be courageous, kind of as, as if we're thinking about it, there has to be this this moral aspect to it. Again, the, the, there are morally praiseworthy as as an aspiring Christian ethicist. That's what my PhD is going to be in. 
Right. We, we think about the ends. You have to think about the means and the ends. And I think, to again, to truly be courageous, there's something about the moral rightness of the end to the action that we are a part of. I think that also has to be a part of a truly courageous action. Now, I, I think that's fair, and you know, and, and I'm I'm not even an aspiring Christian ethicist in a, in, a, in an <laughs> academic sense, right? I mean, I, I do care to have Christian ethics, of course. But when I think about this, and, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm missing the boat, but it seems to me that courage, courage is a virtue. And, and we are told to be courageous, to be of good cheer, and, and not fearing is part of being courage, or at least the ability to resist your fear and persevere despite your fear. Um, and so I would, be, I would be inclined to say that, you know, on some level, you can be courageous for, toward the wrong thing, but the goal for Christians is not only to be courageous. Courage is a virtue. But it, is, it, but it is only something we want to pursue if we're pursuing it for the right means. And, 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 of course, the goal is to be biblical, which means we love what God loves, we hate what God hates, and we demonstrate courage while we are pursuing godly goals. And so for uh, so I would you know I'd go back to a, a kamikaze pilot or a you know or in in a much different example I hate to even make the comparison but let's talk about uh, Christy Noam in that case it's like on some level I think the ability to say no to people does take some fortitude but are you doing it in pursuit of the right things which to me is the more is an equally important question for for Christians is not only do I have the strength to stand up to opposition, which I think in and of itself is, is, is important to have that ability, but do I have the strength to stand up to opposition in pursuit of good goals? Does that matter? I think it does. And so I think you know, we're really talking about two things that, are kind of, that kind of do go together. And I think you know, as Christians, who we, we, we have the, the scriptures as our example, and I tried to flesh this out a little bit in my, my article uh, but you know when Jesus, or excuse me, when God in the Old Testament is uh, talking to uh, jo uh, Joshua, who secedes Moses, he tells him, you know, uh, he charges him, "Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go." And you see other examples with Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others that they have to take a stand. There's a there's there's poise, there's fortitude. Uh, the word you just used. Um, and so there's, their spines need to be stiffened, you could say. But also part of the conversation is doing the right thing. And so I think, yes, I'll, I will concede that you know, people, uh, like the examples we've just given, you know, there takes some level of gumption, some level of fortitude to follow through with things when you are faced with opposition. But as Christians, we're actually called to something higher, which is we need to be brave. We need to hold the line but for the right things. Um, I, I think of the example in Scripture with Saul. He was being pretty bright, you know, uh, showing a lot of gumption when he was pursuing Christians, but he was doing the right. exact opposite thing of what he should have been doing. And when he was confronted on the road to Damascus, when he became Paul, he realized that he had been wrong in the ends he was pursuing in reverse course and then served the Lord with great courage throughout the course of his ministry. So I think you're, you're, you're keying in on something, Joseph, that's really important about the nature of courage and how alongside that is this desire as believers to be doing the yeah. right thing that are in line with Scripture. You know, it, when, you, when you talk about Paul or Saul at that point in, in the context of your reference, I've actually had the, the thought that one of the reasons why I think Saul was useful to God 
and Paul was useful to God is because his whole life he was deeply committed to the truth. And he was just as committed to the truth when he was wrong about the truth as he was as when he was right about the truth. And we know, we know Paul who wrote, wrote all these epistles, but his life before that, he was persecuting the Christians because of his zeal, because of his commitment for the truth. And he thought those Christians, they, they, are, they are undermining the truth, so I'm going to deal with them. And he became useful to God because he had that same zeal for the truth. So I, I think the, um, the lack of passivity in Paul's life in, throughout his life was something that was really useful to God and something that I think is instructive to us is don't just be indifferent. Don't just be docile. I mean, if you're going to go, go. And when God then gets a hold of you and directs you in the right way, you're, you're, you're a lot more useful to him. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. I agree with that 100%. And what's amazing that the same energy uh, that Paul or excuse me, that Saul divert, you know, <laughs> you saw exhibited in his life towards persecuting the church. Once God got a hold of him, the man wrote a third of the New Testament, was the world's greatest missionary and the world's greatest theologian. And uh, that's, I think, an example for all of us to have that courage. Now, do you have a, uh, a favorite example of courage, biblically or otherwise? Golly, uh, two come to mind quickly. Queen Esther in the Old Testament, she chose to do the right thing in her time at great personal risk. Probably most of our listeners know the story. She uh, approached the Persian king to petition uh, to spare her people from genocide. And uh, when she was thinking about her decision, she said, if I perish, I perish, and then went into the uh, king's throne room to uh, petition boldly. And then the the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, they're commanded to to bow down to the pagan king of Babylon. Uh, They say they're not going to do it, and then they look at the king and say, King, we won't serve your gods, uh, but even if God doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down to your false idols. We're going to do the right thing. I think those stories, and obviously Jesus going to the cross, uh, knowing what lay before him, those are examples, I think, that— uh, at least as me when I read my Bible, give me courage in the battles that I'm doing here, uh, standing for faith, family, and freedom, um, that really stiffen my spine. You know, the you make reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and the response that they had. And people are familiar with the story, and and they had refused to bow to this idol, and then King Nebuchadnezzar, who actually liked them, didn't want to incinerate them immediately, right? And so he says, "I'm going to give you another chance." And uh, so just bow this time and then I won't burn you up. But if you don't bow, I am going to burn you up. And their response, I think, gives some insight into a key about what courage is. And they said, first, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter for our God can save us from your hand. First, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we will not bow to your idol. And what they demonstrated there in the, in the, fa- in the very real face of, of death was an absolute faith that God, that the God they had committed their lives to, was capable of anything, including saving them. But they were so committed to his ways and his truth that they were not going to sin regardless of what the cost was. How much do you think believing God is who he says he is contributes to our ability to show courage. I think it, it, it underlines all of that. Uh, it underlines all of the decisions we make. And, you know, Joseph, that decision that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to make, 
is the decision actually that our brothers and sisters in Christ are having actually to make all over the world um, to choose God. And I think at the, the bedrock of that courage is what you just said, knowing God, who he is, and what he's done for us in the person and work of Christ. And knowing that, believing that, that is the bedrock, I think, to live a life that is completely marked with courage and virtue. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's, I mean, there's so much temptation to doubt but if we really believe that the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible, that he created the universe, he created us, he knows the past, present, and future, he can do absolutely anything, who are we to doubt him? Now, David, a lot of people struggle with this, and there's a lot of people, there are people listening who struggle with fear their whole life, and they want to be more courageous. What would you say to them? How can somebody um, move along that spectrum more towards trusting God and into living a courageous life? Yeah, simply put, I'd say the spiritual disciplines. Nothing replaces uh, prayer, nothing replaces reading God's Word and being a part of that local congregation and doing life with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I think just the regular practice of spiritual disciplines over time will build that belief, will build that faith, and uh, result, I believe, in a courageous life. And I think you are exactly right about that, David, because um, it is it's – Satan is always giving us alternatives, and that's what he does. He's the counterfeiter of everything God said was good. He tries to distract us with something worse. And discipline matters so much because that is filling our tank with the right thing. It's eating the right food as opposed to what all the things that Satan is offering. David Clausen, thanks again for your wisdom, your efforts, and your time. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And for all of you out and about, we thank you for your time as well. We really couldn't do it without you. We hope you have a blessed weekend, that you find courage, whatever Satan is tempting with you, you with right now. Go to Jesus, be courageous. God is who he said he is. Have a great weekend. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.